Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about Calvinism, specifically the famous TULIP acronym, Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of the Saints. I used to be a Calvinist. I used to hold all five points. However, since I've become Catholic, I see that some of these need either substantial revision or maybe need to be rejected, depending on how you define it. But nevertheless, I want to contrast this in this episode so that you have a better idea of Reformed theology so you can have conversations with your Protestant friends and in an informed manner. And we're going to be reading a lot from Augustine and Aquinas, which is where Calvin polled a fair bit of his theology. Um, the definitions for TULIP are mainly going to be pulled from the Council of Dort. It was a national synod of Reformed churches, which were formed in response to the teaching of Jacob Arminius, who preached Arminianism, something that I think we should all reject. Uh, a few other words here. One is uh, there's an objection to the Time article, there, or Time episode that I did. If you haven't listened to that one, I think that was a really cool episode. And I make an argument for why we can, in fact, prove philosophically that the past is finite. Um, the objection goes something like this. One of my premises is that we could um, apply a number to each year going into the infinite past if the past was infinite. In other words, um, this year would be year, say, one, and then the previous year, year two, and then that would go into infinity. So this premise could be attacked, potentially, but I don't think it goes through. Uh, here's why. If it's true that the number of infinite years and the infinite numbers, which could be assigned to them, don't agree in cardinality, in other words, they can't go one-to-one, -one, and if we know that numbers are indeed infinite, then that means that if they don't agree in cardinality, that means that the past is not infinite, at which point, far from being an objection, I think that proves my point. Um, so if they can agree in cardinality, I don't see where the objection holds. And we already know that numbers are infinite, and the claim of those who believe that the universe cannot be proved to be finite would be that years could potentially go to the infinite. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that that one works. Also, there's the objection that we would be successively adding a number to the year again and again, and we can't actually do that process in order to reach an infinite, uh, an infinite year. So basically, we can't do the numbering because it requires us to add one number to the next to the next to reach an infinite. And since that's not possible, um, we can't um, defend this premise of the argument. Well, I think that's not really right either, because I would just turn that back on them and say, wait a minute, isn't that how your infinite set of years gets put together? by one more year being added again and again and again. So if I can't do that with counting up the numbers, then you can't do that with your years. At which point, again, you've proved my point, not yours. And if you want to say that that would indeed be, be possible, then there goes the objection. If, however, you want to say that the years are added by simply going from any of the years to the next, just n plus 1 for the years, therefore we get an infinite number of years. Well, sure, that's possible, but I can apply the same solution to my numbering. I don't have to number them successively 
Um, counting one all the way to infinity, why can't I just go from any number which corresponds to the year and add one, so just n plus one. So if you get that solution, so do I. If it fails, it fails for both of us. We're in this together, buddy. Um, so I don't think you can actually destroy that premise, and I think if you push it too hard, you actually prove the opposite. Um, the gun violence one was very uh, popular. Uh, let's see. I wish I focused more on the suicide part. I talked more about the violence part that is violence and more common parlance. Uh, suicide's violence also. However, I think that we should have addressed the larger portion, which is the fact that people are killing themselves and not necessarily others in the vast majority of what is called uh, uh, gun deaths or gun violence. Um, I had a conversation with somebody who's very pro-Second Amendment, as I think we all should be, and they were mostly concerned that I'd be adding a new restriction. However, we believe in the economic way of thinking. We don't need to just add things. We can say compared to what? And I propose that we can strike certain gun laws and replace them with the insurance model, which I think is better and more targeted. And amazingly, we got agreement on that. So in conversations like this, try to use that tactic. Maybe you're advancing a law and you think it's really good. Well, you might not be able to convince somebody to add that, but maybe you can make a trade. And I think that this should be something on the table. Um, I know I promised a lot of episodes working on those. We have the uh, Saint series, more biographical ones that I want to do. Um, also want to do some biographical ones on some famous economists to introduce you guys to them and some of their ideas. And I know there is a debate that's coming up eventually. Uh, we have John Boyle coming soon. If there's an episode that you want me to do and uh, put it on the top of the pile so you get to hear it quick, email me at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. I love those suggestions. Always happy to do a listener request email. Without any further ado, let's start with total depravity. Um, I'll read a couple Bible verses for that, and uh, I think they help to really drive home that this is a pretty strong position, biblically speaking. I'll read what the Council of Dort says on it, and then we'll hit a part uh, where uh, Thomas Aquinas deals with something which I think is very much relevant. So let's talk about oh, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Romans 7.18 For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Um, let's see, what's another good one here? There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek God. All have turned aside. Ooh, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race has become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Um... Oh, how about Jeremiah 17, 17, 9? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So, oh, one more. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. 
That's Romans 8-7. So you can see how Calvinists could read these verses and believe that we are only in a state of only doing evil, that all of our inclinations are entirely against God. But I think they take it a little bit too far. If what they mean by this is that our initial justification or our initial movement to God uh, cannot be done on our own power, well, yes, we agree. Uh, Catholics say that man does not merit in any way his initial justification. That is a pure act of grace. So if they want to stop there, we have agreement. Um, but if they want to say that we are entirely, completely corrupt, we actually have a problem. Here's what Thomas Aquinas says. I answer that man's nature may be looked at in two ways. First, in its integrity, as it was in our first parents before sin. And secondly, as it is corrupted in us after the sin of our first parents. Now, in both states, human nature needs the help of God as the first mover to do or wish any good whatsoever, as stated above in Article 1. But in the state of integrity, as regards the sufficiency of the operative power, man, by his natural endowments, could wish and do good proportionate to his nature, such as the good of acquired virtue but not surpassing good as the good of infused virtue. But in the state of corrupt man, man falls short of what he could do by his nature, so that he is unable to fulfill by his own natural powers. Yet, because human nature is not altogether corrupted by sin, so as to be shorn of every natural good, even in the state of corrupted nature, it can by virtue of its natural endowments, work some particular good, as to build dwellings, plant vineyards, and the like, yet it cannot do all the good natural to it, as it, is falling, as it has fallen short. Just as a sick man can of himself make some movements, yet he cannot be perfectly moved with the movements of one in health, unless by the help of medicine he be cured. I think that's a really good summary of this. So basically, Aquinas is saying that um, human nature needs the help of God as first mover. So we have to look at multiple levels of causality. God being the first mover, being pure actuality himself, is the cause of all actuality. And as we know from the fourth way, uh, he's the cause of all goodness. He's also the cause of all perfection. So in this case, mankind, who is made from nothing, must of course need God as first mover to do or to wish any good whatsoever. But then he moves to talk about human nature. So we are given a real nature. You have human nature. And God has made all natures, and he made them good. Now, that's tarnished by our own sin, um, but it's not entirely destroyed or corrupted. I like his example. People who have fallen into sin can still build buildings and plant vineyards. These are good things. I would add that people who are unregenerated can also be kind to their neighbor, can also be loving towards their children, uh, can also be merciful to the poor or the sick. And he compares the spiritual sickness that we have to the physical sickness of a sick man, that they can move, but he can't move perfectly with the one of, uh, like somebody who is 
in perfect health. I think that's, that is the Catholic position. But let's read Augustine also. But on the other hand, of his own will, a man forsakes God, so as to be deservedly forsaken by God. Who would deny this? But it is for this reason we ask not to be led into temptation, so that this may not happen. And if we are heard, certainly it does not happen, because God does not allow because God does not allow it to happen, for nothing comes to pass except that either he himself does or himself allows to be done. Therefore, he is powerful both to turn wills from good to evil and, or I'm sorry, from evil to good and to convert those that are inclined to fall or to direct them into a way pleasing to himself. I know that was kind of a weird, complicated sentence structure, but I think what he's saying here is that um, it's true that that we have a will which is um, turned away from God. Yes, that is a default position of ours after the fall, that we've been disconnected to God and that we are inclined towards evil. Um, Nevertheless, he affirms here that, uh, and this will become important later, that God is powerful to turn evil wills towards the good and to convert those who are inclined to fall or to direct them into a way pleasing to God. So I think when we take these two together, we can almost affirm uh, certain amounts of total depravity as we talked about earlier. Um, but I think that just a surface level agreement by saying we can't merit initial justification or um, we have a natural inclination to evil um, because we are fallen, I don't think that really does it justice because there's a lot of metaphysical stuff going on under the surface for this and some of the others. So I want to read a bit about, um, about the will. And I think that this is kind of at the root of the discussion about what causes evil to be brought about, what causes good to be brought about. Here's what Augustine says on the will, and this is from the, uh, the City of God. Let no one, therefore, look for an efficient cause of the evil will, for it is not efficient, but deficient, as the will itself is not affecting of something, but a defect, for defection from, what, from that which supremely is to that which has less of being, this is to begin to have an evil will. Now, to seek to discover the cause of these defections, causes, as I have said, not efficient, but deficient, is as if someone ought to see darkness or hear silence. Yet both of these are known to us, and the former only by means of the eye, and the latter only by means of the ear, but not by their positive actuality, but by their want of it. Let no one then seek to know from me what I know that I do not know unless he perhaps wishes to learn to be ignorant of that of which we know is, and that it cannot be known. For those things which are known not by their actuality, but by their want of it, are known if our expression may be allowed and understood by not knowing them, that by knowing them they may not be known. For when the eyesight surveys objects that strike the sense, 
it nowhere sees darkness, but where it begins to not see. And so no other sense but the ear can perceive silence, and yet it is only perceived by not hearing. Thus, too, our minds perceive intelligible forms by understanding them, but they are deficient. It knows them by knowing them not, for, quote, who can understand defects? This, I believe, is the heart of the issue. Man was made from nothing. And God sustains us in existence by a continued act of lending us existence. When our wills fail to be inclined to the good, it is because we're made out of nothing. And if you say, well, what's the cause of us then choosing evil? Well, here's Augustine saying, no, you have it wrong. This is the lack of affecting something. This is a lack of an actuality. This is a part of the fact that you are indeed finite. Um, our evil wills do not have a cause. Why? Because it breaks the principle of sufficient reason? No, because it's just the name for a lack of an efficient cause that would have inclined us to, to the good. We need an entire episode just on the will, but keep this one in mind as we go through the rest of them. And when we talk about total depravity, we don't want to think of, uh, think of this in Calvin's way where there's a, I, I don't want to mischaracterize him, but I believe that he would take the position that man's will is actually moving towards the evil through some type of positive motion. We deny that in Catholicism. Um, we would take the Augustinian approach that this is instead a deficient will. But let's read that part of, from, the, uh, count, from the canons of Dort. Here's what they say about total depravity. All people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sins. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. So as Catholics, do we agree with this? Uh, pretty darn close, because this seems to be talking about um, initial justification, and that is only a work of, uh, a work of grace. However, the Council of Trent goes on to say that anybody who says that we cannot increase our justification uh, through, our, through our merits, let him be anathema. So, oh, to, to get back to what we read earlier about um, Aquinas and the first mover, that shows that we're not in a competitive relationship with God, such that it's either us acting or God acting. Instead, God is the first mover, not just first numerically, but he is the primary, the cause of all movement, the cause of all goodness. So we can't draw such a neat line between God's action and our own. Whenever we do something good after our initial act of justification through baptism, well, this isn't like us on our own steam. It's meritorious only because God, being the cause of all goodness, unites himself to us in a way that our nature is elevated, completed, perfected, uh, 
and therefore meriting further grace. But we have many more to hit, so let's talk about unconditional election. Here's what the canons of Dort say about that. Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, God chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in the common misery. Also, the cause of this undeserved election is exclusively the good pleasure of God. This does not involve God's choosing certain human qualities or actions from among all those possible as a condition of salvation. In other words, we God doesn't look ahead to see how awesome you're going to be and 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 uh, elect you to salvation. Uh, instead, he just chooses you because, well, this pleases God to choose you. And uh, we're not always privy to why he does things. Uh, who can know his ways? Uh, infinitely higher are his than ours. Now, Calvin says this a little bit differently than the... Um, than what I read from Dort. He says, election itself could not exist without being opposed to condemnation. God is said to separate those whom he adopts to salvation, whom God passes by. Therefore, he condemns and from no other cause than his determinate, than his determination to exclude them from the inheritance which he predestines for his children. And the petulance of men is intolerable. If it refuses to be restrained by the word of God, which treats of his incomprehensible counsel, adored by the angels himself. That's from the Institutes. No, Calvin, uh, we wouldn't agree with that. When he says that um, for no other cause than his determination to exclude them from the inheritance, which he predestines for his children. No, 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 no. We definitely disagree with this from a Catholic perspective. There is no positive action of exclusion by God whereby he takes people and pushes them away from himself. God draws near to us and seeks to draw us near to him. He does not by a determined act, exclude people from the inheritance which he predestines to his children. Instead, we would take the position that God gives a positive amount of grace to people to come to him, but he does not extend this in the same amount to others, such that he's electing some to salvation, but he makes no positive action to predestine others to damnation. So Catholicism rejects double predestination, but it does accept that there is a default towards hell because out of nothing we were made and we are bound to, um, we are bound to fail as finite creatures without connection to God. So that's a very important distinction. However, I, I think as, as Dort laid it out, uh, that could be compatible right? We agree that it was before the foundation of the world. We agree it's by sheer grace. We agree that God um, uh, predestines those according to his good pleasure. Um, we also agree that there's a, a definite number of particular people, though there are some who would not accept that inside of the Catholic tradition. So this seems mostly right, and of course it uh, also seems to jive with scripture, um, 
So here's a, a couple verses for that. And this is Romans 9, 15 through 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. He also says in scripture, uh, let's see, oh, Ephesians 1, uh, 4 through 5, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And of course, this would not be complete without a reading from um, a very lengthy part from, oh, let's see, Augustine again, because we like him. I've been reading a lot of him. He's awesome. Here's what he says. Let us then understand the calling whereby they become elected, not those who are elected because they have believed, but who are elected that they may believe. All right, stop right there. So you're not elected because you will believe or you have believed. But those who are elected are elected that they may believe. So we have something ontologically prior to our own belief, and that is God's election. And I think that was affirmed in Scripture. Um, what last verse that we read, before the foundations of the world, etc. For the Lord himself also sufficiently explains this calling when he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. That's John fifteen sixteen. For if they had been elected because they had believed, they themselves would certainly have first chosen him by believing in him, so that they should deserve to be elected. But he takes away this supposition altogether when he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And yet they themselves, beyond a doubt, chose him when they believed on him. Whence, it is not for any other reason that he says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, than because they did not choose him that he would choose them, but he chose them that they might choose him, because his mercy preceded them according to grace, not according to debt. Therefore, he chose them out of the world while he was wearing flesh, but as those who were already chosen in himself before the foundation of the world. This is the changeless truth concerning predestination and grace. For what is it that the apostle says, as he has chosen us in himself before the foundation of the world? Ephesians 1.4, and assuredly, if this were said because God foreknew that they would believe, not because he himself would make them believers. The Son is speaking against such a foreknowledge as that when he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. When God would rather have foreknown this, um, when God should rather have foreknown this very thing, that they themselves would have chosen him, so that they might deserve to be chosen by him. Therefore, they were elected before the foundation of the world, with that predestination in which God foreknew what he himself would do. But they were elected out of the world with that calling whereby God fulfilled that which he predestinated. For whom he predestined, uh, them he also called. With that calling to which 
which is according to the purpose, which is quoting, I forget what section, scripture, and because he doesn't cite it, he probably forgot too. Not others, therefore, but those whom he predestined, them he also called, nor others, but those whom he called, them he also justified, nor others, but those whom he predestined, called and justified them, he also glorified, assuredly to the end, which has no end. Therefore God elected believers, but he chose them that they might be so, not because they were already so. The apostle James says, has not God chosen the poor in this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which God has promised to them that love him? James 2.5, by choosing them, therefore he makes them rich in faith. So I think that's an important point. God's choosing them means that they're given grace, which means they're given faith, which means they do the works which lead to salvation, right? Loving God, um, uh, loving neighbor as self, etc. He makes them rich in faith as he makes them heirs of the kingdom because he rightly said to choose that in them in order to make which in them he chose them. That's complicated. <laughs> Anyways, um, we'll wrap it up right there. Uh, I think that he makes quite clear that we have God's choice prior to our merits, prior to our choosing, and that we are not predestined because of foreseen merits or a foreseen movement of will, but instead those movements of will, those merits are after God's grace, after even God making us rich in faith so that we can have an act of faith. All right. Limited atonement is coming up next, and that one is certainly the most hotly contested one. Even in Calvinist circles, there's plenty of five-point Calvinists in the world, but there's also a lot of four-point ones. And if you hear that there's a four-point Calvinist, the point that he's probably rejecting is limited atonement. Um, all right, uh, let's see. Do I have anything else to say about unconditional election? I would say this. Uh, God, and just kind of reiterating this, which is similar to a previous point I made about the earlier one, the T, total depravity. God does no causal action to bring about exclusion. That exclusion um, would be directly bringing about evil. Um, so what this isn't saying, right, the unconditional election, it's not saying that there's... Um, yeah, anyways, I think you guys get the point. Basically, God is always in the business of bringing about good. So to say that we are predestined to evil, I, I'd say is just wrong on a variety of, of levels. We, we are inclined to evil because we have wills and we have full selves which are made from nothing. And the condition of us being saved from that is just God being God, right? He's just in the business of bringing about good. Um, and we're in the business of being made from nothing. So it just kind of, in a way, this drops out of that, that the, there can't be a condition which is pertinent to creation because creation is only made out of the sovereign, generous will of God's one eternal act of creation. Don't know where I was going with that. Limited atonement. This is what we need to have in mind. This is from uh, the Catechism 605, is the paragraph. 
At the end of the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus recalled that God's love excludes no one. Quote, so it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He affirms that he came to, quote, to give life as a ransom for many. This last term is not restrictive, but contrasts the whole of humanity with the unique person of the Redeemer who hands himself over to save us. The church, following the apostles, teaches that Christ died for all men, without exception. There is not, never has been, and never will be a single human being for whom Christ did not suffer. So, if the limited atonement claim is that there is a single human being that Christ didn't suffer for, that's just flat wrong. So we would reject limited atonement. Um, however, it gets a little bit more complicated than that. Um, but let me read, a, uh, read another quote for you. I speak thus of those who are predestined to the kingdom of God, whose number is so certain, this is Augustine again, I believe, um, so certain that no one neither, uh, so certain that one can neither be added to them nor taken from them. Not of those who, when he had announced and spoken, were multiplied beyond number, for they may be said to be called but not chosen, because they are not called according to the purpose, but that the number of the elect is certain and neither to be increased nor diminished, although it is signified by John the Baptist when he says, bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say to themselves, we have Abraham as our father, for God is able to take these stones to raise up children to Abraham. To show that they were in such wise to be cut off if they did not produce fruit, that the number which was promised to Abraham should not be wanting, it is yet more plainly declared in the Apocalypse, quote, Hold fast that which you have, lest another take your crown. In that's Revelation, he calls it the Apocalypse. For if another would not receive, unless should be lost, the number is fixed. So, Augustine seems to say that there is a uh, fixed number. And interestingly, this last part, his reading of Revelation, could mean that although the number is fixed, uh, people could take your place in that line, which I think is interesting. Um, I'd have to read more about his, um, uh, his understanding of that. The reason I talk about this is because there are plenty of Catholics who believe that the number of the elect are fixed. And I believe that Aquinas is one of them, that he thinks that, yes, if you were predestined from the beginning, um, well, that's it. You know, God knew exactly how many would be predestined, and um, he'll bring that about. Which brings us to the birthday cake example, which is common in Calvinism. It goes like this. If I were to bake a birthday cake and then invite everybody in the entire world to my birthday party, how many people would actually arrive? Well, certainly not the whole world. That would be impossible. But I might have, I don't know, 40 people arrive. Who is the cake actually baked for? Well, it's for the people who arrived, right? Because they're the ones who get to eat the cake. So that's the limited atonement parallel. Who actually came to Christ? Well, those that are elect. Those who are predestined before the foundation of the world. All right, so who was Christ's death actually for? Well, 
those people who actually came to him, that were predestined, that were given the grace to come to, to Christ. And if that's all they're saying, uh, we can actually agree. We can say yes in that more narrowly defined way. If you want to say that um, we're only talking about the efficacious grace that you receive um, through the merits of Christ, then that's kind of just like a tautology, right? It's, it's all the people who, who get to Christ are the people who basically were given the grace to get to Christ. In other words, it's limited in the number because we're just defining that number as the group of people who end up there. And yeah, I guess that's true. Um, it seems trivially true, but if we press it past what's kind of trivial, that yeah, we understand that not everybody gets the benefits of atonement, sure. And we talk about what Christ had in mind in his passion, like did he want to redeem the world or just those people? That's where it starts to break down. Uh, I th- certainly think that that Christ um, was doing a salvific act for not just all people, but all of creation. And uh, just look at what, again, he's the second Adam. What happened when Adam fell? Well, the effects were for all humans that we had a, um, a tainting, tainting of our will, that something bad happened to all of us. Now, is it true that some people who were um, damaged through the uh, sin of the fall uh, later come to Christ or before the Messiah, they seek to be part of the holy people and to be uh, be cleansed of, of that original sin, to be, to be cleansed of their personal sin, to live in the best communion with God that is possible at that point in salvation history? Well, yeah, it's true. Well, does that then mean that Adam's fall was only for the limited group of people who continued to be in iniquity? Well, no, it certainly was affecting all people, even though there's a difference in the way that that actually plays out salvifically in each one of those people's lives. I would say the same is true with Christ. There is a real change for every single human being as a result of Christ's incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. That doesn't mean that we all have this applied in our lives and to the same degree. Um, to push the point, when, when Adam fell, all of creation fell, precisely because he was the high priest of all creation. Well, is Christ the high priest of all creation? Uh, yeah, emphatically, yes. Go ahead, read Hebrews. So when Christ, the high priest, um, undoes the sin of Adam, are there not effects on all creation? Of course there are. And I think that's enough to, um, to dispatch the limited atonement theory, at least in its non-neutered sense that simply is just a truism, like the birthday cake example. But let's read, um, let's see. Did I read the part from the Council of Dort? I don't think so. Here's what it says. It was God's will that Christ through the sacrifice, uh, through the blood of the cross, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who are chosen from eternity to salvation. So can we agree with that? It was God's will that Christ should, through the blood of the cross, effectively redeem 
from every people, all those who were chosen? Well, if we're only talking about the effective nature and we're talking about redemption full scale as it would pertain to our eternal destiny? Um, yes, but you got to be careful with this one. Let's get on to irresistible grace. Let's see what the Calvinist position is on this again from the canons of Dort. God infuses new qualities into the will, making, uh, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling and the stubborn one compliant. So here the Calvinists would say that we have that default to evil and that God could always make us good. God could always make us choose him if he just added more grace. So if you have Jeffrey Dahmer killing people, well, it is the case that God could always overwhelm the freedom of his will by giving more and more and more grace such that he would finally turn towards God. And therefore, everybody who does not end up um, as one of the elect, one of the people who will ultimately be saved at the end of time, well, they're only in that position because God didn't give them enough grace. God could have. He chose not to. Let's read from, oh, let's see. Yeah, let's read from my man, Augustine, again. Now, if faith is simply of free will and is not given by God, why do we pray for those who will not believe that they may believe? This it would be absolutely this would be absolutely useless to do unless we believe with perfect propriety that Almighty God is able to turn uh, is able to turn to belief wills that are perverse and opposed to faith. Man's free will is addressed when it is said, quote, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. But if God were not able to remove from the human heart even its obstinacy and hardness, he would not say through the prophet, I will take from their heart of stone, and I will give them a heart of flesh. That all this was foretold in reference to the New Testament, is clearly shown by the apostle when he says, You are an epistle, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. Augustine seems to affirm that, yes, we have free will, but also God can transform our stone-like hearts, our hard hearts that are rejecting him, into hearts of flesh. To make sense of this, let me read a reply to an objection which is found in the Summa Theologiae from our main man, St. Thomas Aquinas. Quote, No other perfection except grace added to substance renders God present um, in anything as the object known and loved. Therefore, only grace constitutes a special mode of God's existence in things. There is, however, another special mode of God's existence in man by union, which will be treated in its own place, and that gets to some Christology issues. But right here, no other perfection except grace added to substance renders God present in anything as the object known and loved. Therefore, only grace 
constitutes a special mode of God's existence in things. How do we relate these two quotes? Well, we have a nature. It was created by God. All natures were created by God, and therefore they're good. So we have one of these, and yet part of that is a will. And we can turn that to God or away from God. But union with God, either through the sacramental means, through Christ, or union with God just through him infusing grace, um, makes God present with this object which is known and loved. Therefore, grace constitutes a special mode of God's existence in things. So when we do things which are good, particularly things which are supernaturally good, this is evidence of God's existence in us as the maximum of goodness himself. God is ultimately perfect and therefore the cause of all other perfections. So we shouldn't see this competitive relation as if our free will was something outside of divine causality. No, to the effect, to the extent that it acts perfectly, it's because God is there. He has a special mode of existence in us as our wills move towards him. So when we have that hard heart, which is faced away from God, God can enter into us. That is his grace. Grace is God coming to his creation. And that can cause our will to be perfected. This isn't a removing of our nature. Instead, it's a perfection of our nature. This isn't going against our will. It's actually healing and being a remedy for our will. So if the question is, can God always, through his presence, um, make us choose God? Well, in a sense, yes. God can always make anything perfect. He can cause free creatures to freely choose the good, but he can do that with absolute certainty. Nothing is outside of the sovereignty of God, and because outside of God are only things created out of nothing, all actualities, all goodness, all perfection is ultimately because of God as the primary, the first cause so in this respect, um, sure, we could call it irresistible grace. However, when we talk about this as if um, it removes free will such that there is no option uh, for us uh, as free rational creatures to reject God if God offers a positive amount of grace— I think this gets a little bit more dicey. And again, there are Catholic theologians who agree and disagree on this issue. I think that we can simply affirm that man's capacity to deny the grace which God's, God gives to him is a real part of what it means to have a will. And we also need to say that the will is directed towards the good just like the intellect is directed towards the truth. But because, and I've really been hammering this point home because I think it's key to the discussion, because we are made from nothing and evil is a privation, it's non-being where being ought to be, 
it's possible for our intellect, when not entirely and fully united with God, who is the maximum of existence, the maximum of truth, the maximum of goodness, it's possible for there to be a deficient cause um, when we are acting in the created order, such that sin is brought about so that our will can rightly be called evil. But that's not just, I mean, we could say in a sense, God could have just always added more grace. And that's true in the sense that God's omnipotent, all sovereign, and can perfect all things through uniting himself with them and bringing about that perfection. But it's false in the sense that that overrides the freedom of the will, such that our will becomes, um, oh, just an extension of God's in a way which, uh, yeah, which which breaks uh, what we know of uh, God's ability to act through his creation. So we, we got to be careful with this one. We mainly agree, though, I think. And finally, perseverance of the saints. And here's a another quote. I think it's from Augustine, again, because we like this guy. Therefore, the number of saints, by God's grace, predestined to God's kingdom, with the gift of perseverance to the end bestowed on them, shall be guided there in its completeness. And there shall be, at length, without end, preserved in its fullness, completeness, most blessed, the mercy of their Savior still cleaving to them, whether in their conversion, in their conflict, or in their crown. Again, we have to make distinctions. If the Calvinist claim is, God predestined some for salvation before the foundations of the world, not according to what they would do, but instead according to God's good pleasure. Agreed. If the claim is that these people who are predestined to reach the end will reach the end, uh, yeah, that's just true by definition. However, if it's that after initial regenerations, we would believe in baptism, as would many Calvinists, um, that orients us to God. If the belief is that after that initial orientation to God, we can then never fall, no, we disagree. Um, and most Calvinists disagree with that also. They would say that people can become apostate after their baptism. Now, Jimmy Aiken makes an interesting um, distinction. He talks about predestination to that initial justification and predestination to our final having reached heaven. And he also points out that in the second respect, yeah, that's just kind of true by definition. But he focuses more on that initial one, and he seems to suggest that that's what scripture and tradition commonly speak about, a predestination to initially be adopted into the family of God through baptism, and that in that respect, we don't believe in the perseverance of the saints. While I think that he makes some good points here, I don't think that that's the original context that Calvin was talking about, uh, or many Reformed theologians would be addressing. Um, I think the destination part of predestination pertains to the destination of either heaven or hell. But let's read the Canons of Dort and see what we find. Just as God is most wise, unchangeable, all-knowing, and almighty, so the election made by him can neither be suspended nor altered, revoked or annulled. Neither can God's chosen ones be cast off, nor their number reduced. Well, that doesn't clear it up, um, but I couldn't find a really good 
John Calvin quote for this to, to clear it up. Um, I don't think we hit scripture for the last one, but let's hit a little bit of scripture for this one. Um, and I, maybe that will shed light. We will see. Philippians 1, 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Does this say that for every time there's a good work that's begun, it will be perfected? I don't think it's making an emphatic statement here. Instead, he's talking to a specific group, that this group has good works in them, and he has confidence that God will continue. Doesn't seem to be in the context of um, a, a universal as it respects to soteriology. Um, Ephesians. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I would say this points to the sacrament of confirmation, even all the way back in Scripture, we, we say in the confirmation process, be sealed with the Holy Spirit um, when we put the chrisming oil on people. Uh, I don't think that proves it either. Uh, let's see, John 1, uh, they went out from us, but they were not really with us. For if they had been with us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it should be shown that all were not with us. This gets a little bit more clarification. We can see who will ultimately be saved based on who can fall away. Because if you were fallen away, that means that, well, by definition, you aren't one of the ones that are ultimately saved. However, if you read that first verse about begun a good work in you, um, I'm not sure that this jives with this one because it says that um, these people were not able to remain. But if they started with you, isn't that a good work? So there seems to be a conflict between these two verses if you take the very strong Calvinist position on this one. Um, and this is the big one. John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I think this is making, I think we can read this two ways. One is, if you are baptized into the family of God, then God did that as a sheer act of grace. Your will cannot merit in any way initial justification, which is brought about in that way. So God has done this. And then after that, you have the grace to never commit a mortal sin. And even if you did, you are given the sacraments to confess that sin and be healed of it. There is no impediment from outside of yourself to prevent you from reaching heaven after baptism. Um, I think that's how we should understand this. So Satan can't make you go to hell. Other people cannot make you go to hell. If you have been brought into the covenant family, then the only one who can bring you out of that, well, is you. The other way we can read this is the form of predestination we were speaking about earlier, that we're simply talking about those who God foreknew, predestined, and will reach the end in the end. Then, yeah, that's kind of a truism. Of course those people will reach the end because that's what defines them as part of the group, those who will reach the end. So this one... Maybe more than the others seems to be a bit of a semantic dispute. Um, yeah, 
Quick rundown. Do, 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 do. Total depravity. Uh, our wills are tainted but um, and weakened by sin. Our natures are not destroyed. Um, we're still humans, and humans are made in the image of God. We're, uh, we have the initial grace that our forebearers, Adam and Eve, um, that, that grace has been removed. So, yeah, sin is more present in the world. And, um, yeah, we need God's grace to bring us to the initial act of justification. And we need God's continued presence in us to perfect our will. Um, the unconditional election part. Um, let's see, is that one the T T U? Can I spell tulip? I guess I can. I can because I know about Calvinism. Unconditional election. We pretty much agree with this one. I think that one just gets a check mark. Yep. Uh, all things ultimately are because of God's uh, God's will. Sure. Limited atonement. This one we had a big problem with because we believe that God really did come in the person of Christ in a priestly act, die for all people, and uh, to redeem the universe as a whole. Though we do agree with them that there's not uh, we're not universalists. This was only efficacious for some, and those some were those people that God foreknew. Irresistible grace. This one got a little bit dicey. It's true that God can uh, cause free creatures to reach a given end freely, but with certainty. God can always do this. But we say this because we don't see this competitive um, causal story going on. Um, and I think that's what's running in the background in Calvinism, that it's either God or it's man acting. We can kind of thread the needle by simply saying we act because God is the primary mover. And any time that we move towards uh, the good, well, that's simply a result of God uniting us with himself in the form of his grace such that we can be perfected. And finally, perseverance of the saints. Um, yeah, we just talked about that one. So I think you understand that one. So go talk to some Calvinists. Let them know that Catholicism is way closer to Calvinism than they may have thought. Um, affirm that there's no causal arrow going from God to the damnation of all mankind. Instead, that's um, uh, we, we believe in only one type of predestination, and that is God foresees, loves, and gives grace to those who he wants with him uh, in heaven. And all those who have deficient wills uh, don't have deficiency as a active cause applied to them. Like Calvin would say, where God wants to exclude them, he doesn't. God wants to include all people into um into his uh, Trinitarian family, but sadly, some of us reject it, and we reject it because of our free wills, which are are truly free, um, and to the extent they choose God, that's an act of mercy. To the extent that they choose against God, that's just part of the fact of being finite and not being God. So the takeaway, get close to God, stay close to God, you'll be one of the elect, and we'll see you in heaven. We'll also see you in the next episode, which is, who knows? I don't know. Some things are opaque to me. I cannot foresee this, and neither is it predestined. Actually, it is predestined. Well, kind of. That gets complicated. There is a passage that says that um, all the steps of man are foreknown and written in his book. 
So I guess God knows and has predestined exactly what episode will come next. And I would appreciate you listening to that. Keep sharing. The podcast is growing. And I appreciate you listening. And I'll talk to you next time.